0: Make your way to Luke chapter 17, where Christy just read. Um, thank you, Dallas and team, for leading us this morning. Pastor John is in Central Asia. Pastor Chad is coming back from the Dominican Republic, and so we look forward to, uh, to him being back, and we'll continue to pray for Dr. Well, yeah, Dr. John and the, um, the team that is in Central Asia. Um, if you're a guest with us, my name's Joe. I'm the lead pastor here at Providence, and what we do is we just go through books of the Bible, uh, the Bible is God's word, not what I say. And so my job as a pastor is to just try to uh, read this to you, explain this to you, illustrate this to you, and then apply that to you. So that's my job. And as we make our way through books of the Bible and through passages of Scripture, there come those days that are a little easier and there come those days that are a little Harder, and today is a day that might be a little harder in some sin, in some ways, because today is a day where Jesus very much is drawing a line in the sand between those who are believers and those who are not believers. He's going to be talking very much about what is to come as it relates to uh, believers and what is to come as it relates to non-believers. And by believer, non-believer, I'm talking about those who have personally trusted by faith in Christ what he has done his life his death and his resurrection that he paid for our sins on the cross and that when we trust him we're receiving his payment and he's giving to us his righteousness and so a transaction takes place he takes our sin he gives us his righteousness and we can, can stand clean before God the father not on the basis of what we've done because all we've done is sin. But on the basis of what Jesus has done and his perfect life in the place of ours, and then his death in the place of ours. And so that is what our hope is found in. And so, to kind of get into what we're talking about this morning in particular, and, and first I just want to tell you a story. Our lives changed yesterday because we got a dog, uh, first time. And so, we're really excited about uh, our dog. Thank you to those of you who made that happen. Uh, his name is Luther. Uh, This is the 500th, and I'm a nerd, come on, it's okay. This is the 500th, 1517, October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the church door at Wittenberg, birthing the Protestant Reformation. And so this year, 2017, is the 500th anniversary of that. And so the girls felt it was very fitting to name him Luther because of that. (laughs) But his code name is Woofer, so it kind of works out. Luther, Woofer, you know, it, it works out. But, uh, but that's, you know, kind of who it is. Our, our lives change. We're really excited about that. And so thank you again to those of you who made that uh, possible. Uh, but whether you have much of a background in Christianity or none at all, whether you know who Luther is or don't know who Luther is, you have probably heard the Lord's Prayer at some point. I know as a former athlete, we would pray this before competitions, and most of the teams were made up of non-Christians, but we would still recite it almost like a magic incantation of blessing and help in competition, though that's not what it is, but that's how we treated it. But the point is, lots of people are familiar with it, and in the Lord's Prayer, which is recorded both in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Luke, it, it, it goes like this. Most of you probably know it, but it says, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. What is that? What is this kingdom that we are praying to come? What is it? What is it? What is it? And then when is it going to come? And as we arrive in Luke chapter 17, verse 20, it's the latter part of that question, the when, that this portion of Scripture is concerned with. But before we get into that, and, and into the when, and into the how of the coming of the kingdom, I think it's important for us to kind of pull up and review what. What is this kingdom? What is it all about? Well, my prayer being that all of this, the when, the how, the what, All of it would challenge us, would change us, and would cheer us. Because for those who are in Christ, the when and like when he comes, that's the culmination of our hope. And so challenging, yes, let it change us, but let it cheer us as well. And so, number one in your notes, you can kind of scratch out what I wrote. I changed the wording a little bit. But number one, the first thing we're talking about is what is the kingdom of God? And so if you're taking notes, write that down. What is the kingdom of God? And on one hand, the kingdom of God, God is the creator of all things. He is the Lord of all things. He's the king of kings and the Lord of wars. There's not one molecule in existence drilling down to the... To the nucleus and the proton and the neutron, or the electrons that are revolving around it, there's not one of those things that over which God does not say, Mine. Okay, He is the king over all things. But the biblical and theological notion of the kingdom of God is much more specific than that, it's referring to a distinct reality. And so, to help us begin to kind of get our arms around what this is, I want to give you two ways to look at the overall story of the Bible. Not two different ways, but just two ways to to say the same thing. One is like the super cliff notes, and the other is just the regular cliff notes. And if you don't know what cliff notes are, Google it, all right? it's basically for lazy procrastinators, and I am in that group, the Wikipedia of, you know, back of years ago. And so you can Google that and read about it, but not right now. I need you to stay with me. So Super Cliff Notes, and then we're going to look at Cliff Notes and try to summarize the overall story of the Bible. And so Super Cliff Notes, you can think of the overall story of the Bible as four acts. If you have been here at Providence for any length of time, this is familiar. The four acts of the Bible are creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And so the Bible begins with the fact that there is an eternal God who is good and gracious, and He created a good, perfect world. That's creation. And then mankind rebelled against this God and brought the curse of sin and all of its disastrous consequences into the world, fracturing the harmony and the peace, the shalom of God. All right? The the universal good design was fractured, including separating man from God because of our sinfulness. He's holy. We're sinful. There's a separation now. So that's the fall, the fall of mankind. So creation. If you have a Catholic background, this is original sin. So creation, fall, and so that's Genesis 1, 2, and 3. You've already got the first two acts of the Bible. And then the whole rest of the Bible is about the redemption that is in Jesus and how we can be made right with God and have our sin atoned for through the cross of Christ. And so the whole rest of the Bible is about this redemption and The coming restoration of all that's been broken by sin, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, where everything that's gone wrong will be made right and where the paradise that we lost in Adam, Adam and Eve will be regained in Christ when he comes again and there's a new heavens and a new earth. And so that's the super cliff notes overarching story of the Bible, you might call it a meta narrative, all right? Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. This is what's going on in the universe. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. This story is happening and we are a part of it. Super cliff notes. But then the cliff notes where we begin to, you know, say it a different way but really just saying the same thing but maybe with a few more details. It's still a summary but a few more details. We can look at it through the winds of the kingdom of God. Right? Through the winds of the kingdom of God. And we see the pattern of God's kingdom established right there in the first act in creation itself. And so right out of the gate, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, we get the pattern of God's kingdom. And here is the pattern of God's kingdom. You want to write this down. The pattern of God's kingdom is this it's God's people. In God's place, under God's rule and blessing. That's the pattern of God's kingdom. It's God's people, in God's place, under God's rule and blessing. And this pattern is established right out of the gate, first act in creation. Act 1, act 2, act 3, act 4. Act 1, in creation, we get the pattern. God's people, God's place, God's rule and blessing. And so here's how it rolls out in chapter 1, or in Act 1. You've got God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, the Garden of Eden, under God's rule and blessing. All right, So the pattern is established right there. God's people are in God's place under God's rule and blessing. That's the pattern. But then the fall happens. Act 2 we just talked about. The fall happens and God's people, Adam and Eve, rebel against God. They fractured the shalom. They fractured the very good... Um, perfect design. Sin enters the world. But immediately, Genesis three, verse 15, God promises I'm going to send one someday. I'm going to send someone send one someday who's going to stomp and crush the head of the serpent and is going to get my people back in my place under my rule and blessing for all time. So that promise happens immediately and then God starts rolling that out. And so he shows up to an Iraqi pagan Gentile named Abram in Genesis 12 and says, I know that the world is broken and I'm going to fix it and I'm going to start with you. I'm going to bring redemption into the world and I'm starting with you. And so Genesis 12, we get the beginning of what's called the Abrahamic covenant, which is basically a promise to restore all that's been broken to fix all that's gone wrong that was fractured in the fall. And so it's a promise to return God's people to God's place under God's rule and blessing for all time. And so here's what Genesis 12 says, the Abrahamic covenant. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land, God's place, that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, a multitude of people, God's people, and I will bless you, rule and blessing, and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. This is speaking of the people of God. And in you, all the families of the earth, Shall be blessed. And so that's the promise in the nutshell. It's a promise of God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing once again. That's the promise. That's what the covenant is all about. And so watch this. In Eden, you have the pattern of the kingdom established, right? God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. In Abraham, now you've got the kingdom promised that God's people will be back in God's place under God's rule and blessing. We get to David and Solomon and you have the kingdom foreshadowed. It's an initial fulfillment, but this is not what Abraham was looking forward to. I'll show you that in Hebrews 11 in just a second. So you've got the kingdom foreshadowed and you have this temporary collection of God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. So you Kingdom promised or kingdom, uh, the pattern of the kingdom, the promise of the kingdom, the foreshadowing of the kingdom. You keep rolling it down through history. You get to Jesus and Jesus shows up and he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He's here because Jesus is God's people and he is God's place. We don't need a temple anymore. He's replaced it and he is God's rule And blessing, and then someday Jesus will come again and we'll have the kingdom consummated because God's people will be in God's place, new heavens and new earth, under God's rule and blessing forever and ever. That's the ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12. Because God's promise to Abraham was never, I mean, the God of the universe who created every planet, every galaxy, every solar system, everything, was never concerned with just one little sliver of land in the Middle East. He promised Abraham the earth. God's Abraham's people, the descendants of us, the people of God, the earth, the new earth. New heavens, new earth. This is the culmination of everything. The restoration, new heavens, new earth. That's the real promised land that Abraham was looking forward to. And so that's why in Hebrews chapter 11, it says this By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And so that's why skipping down to verse 13, these all, that's the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And so there's a new heavens and a new earth coming with a new Jerusalem. That's the real promised land. And that's the ultimate fulfillment of God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing forever and ever and ever. That's what the kingdom of God is about. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And so it was patterned. It was promised. It was foreshadowed. When Jesus showed up, it was at hand. And yet, at the same time, it was still to be consummated. And that's the idea, those last two in particular, that Jesus is pointing out in Luke 17, 20-37. So let me read that again to get that back in our minds and we'll make our way through it. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, He answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. I.e., I'm the king and I'm here. The kingdom is in the midst of you. It has come. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus has said this multitudes of times throughout Luke. In verse 22, then he kind of turns to the disciples and says, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. Like I will have ascended and gone back to heaven. And they will say to you, uh, speaking of the second coming, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. Even then, Jesus knew there would be wacky, end times, crazy people. And they're Everywhere. And he says, here's how it's going to go down. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in His day. But first, He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. He's pointing out His death on the cross. There is no kingdom possible without Christ dying for our sins. And then he says, verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed." And so Jesus is speaking in the verses 20 through 21 about the fact that, that he is here. The kingdom is in the midst of you. All right? The kingdom of God is, on, is at hand. And then verses 22 through 37, he's speaking of the fact that the kingdom of God is still to come. And so what Jesus is driving at, and this is number two in your notes, is that the kingdom is an already but not yet paradigm. Okay, it's an, I know these are deep waters today. This is the way it rolls out. I told you sometimes it's harder. Already, but not yet paradigm. That the kingdom is already here, but it's not yet fully here. And so the best way I can think of, to try to illustrate this to you is to think about a sunrise for a minute. Like I've seen all kinds of sunrises all across the country. From the west coast to the rocky mountains to the appalachian trail to the gulf of mexico McKenzie river up in oregon yellowstone tetons grand canyon all these places crazy awesome sunrises but my favorite one is still the farm i grew up on in pine log you need to visit pine log and what happens there is that in the in the morning the, the the sun rises it pops over pine log mountain it starts lighting up the fields, and you've got these purples and oranges and pinks, and the clouds are dancing, and it just becomes this glorious, beautiful, beautiful sunrise. But the deal with the sunrise, I want you to think about this in your own mind for just a minute, is that the sky becomes bright long before the sun ever appears. The sun has so much Power, the light is so powerful that it reaches to parts of the earth where the sun itself is not yet visible. Okay, through faith, Christ's kingdom light already shines salvation and hope into our soul, and so we know our King. We're following our King. We're trusting our King. We have this light. It's already happening. all right? By grace, through faith, He removes our guilt, our shame, places us into the kingdom. And many of its blessings are enjoyed now. But many of them are not yet here. And so, as one guy put it, the decisive battle against sin and Satan and sickness and death has been fought and won by the king in his death and resurrection. But the war is not over. Sin must be fought. Satan must be resisted. Sickness must be prayed over and groaned under. And death must be endured until the second coming of the king and the consummation of the kingdom. And so at Jesus' first coming, the light of salvation, the light of the kingdom broke over the horizon into our dark world, and when Christ returns, the sun will be fully raised. So you've got this already and not yet paradigm. Our hope when it's fully raised will be realized, paradise will be regained, new heavens, new earth, Christ's kingdom will come in its fullness. This is the plan of God laid down before the foundations of the earth. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. It's happening. And so the world is not spinning purposelessly. It's not spinning pointlessly It's not spinning hopelessly. It's spinning by God's control and God's design, by God's goodness and by God's grace. And He's inviting more and more people into His kingdom through faith. People from a million different backgrounds with a million different stories of God's saving grace in their life who are all united around one thing and one thing only. And that's the King. Not culture. Not politics. Not ethnicity, not nationality, not anything else you want to put in there that we could rally around. We are rallied around one thing, and that's the king and his glory and his majesty and his mercy and his grace that he has lavished on his people. That's what we rally around. That's why a church which... People of God, the church should be made up of people from a gazillion different backgrounds who do not agree on everything. We agree on Christ. That's what we agree on. We agree on the Word of God. That's what we agree on. But all kinds of other things, we're not rallied around that. That's not where our hope is. That's not what we're about. We're about Christ. And so it's like at a Titans game. Thousands of different backgrounds. Everybody's cheering for one thing. The Titans. United around that. That's the church. Local and universal. That's what the kingdom is about. It's about the king. And so it's here because Jesus has come, but it's not fully here. It's already, but not yet. But there is coming a day when Christ will return. The Son of Man, as it's mentioned numerous times here in Luke. In fact, it's used that, that terminology is used 84 times in the Gospels. And it refers to an Old Testament prophecy, Daniel 7, which talks about the return of Christ. Here's what it says. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. This is Jesus. And He came to the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and was presented before Him. And to Him, this is the Son of Man, this is Jesus, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And His kingdom, one that shall not be Destroyed. And so again, you've got the kingdom. It's come. Jesus has come. And it's coming. Already, but not yet. Partly present. Partly future. Already, but not yet paradigm. But this day of Jesus' return and the culmination of the kingdom, is coming. It's coming. And when it happens, it will be unmistakable. There will be no one saying, you you think this is it? Is this it? No one's going to do that. There will be no questions. It'll be worldwide. There will be no place that you can be on all of God's earth where you will not be aware of the fact that Christ has come. It's going to be sudden like lightning. So no chart or diagram is going to be able to prepare you for the instantaneous moment when it comes. And it's going to be inescapable. There will be no place where you can go and say, sorry, I missed that. Didn't know that this was happening. And so because of that, the day of the Lord, as wonderful as it will be for Jesus' people, will be absolutely calamitous for those who are unprepared for it. Alistair Begg puts it like this, every single person in this room will see Jesus face to face. The only question is whether we will meet him in the welcome of his friendship, having embraced him by grace through faith as our Savior, or whether we will bow down under his foot, meeting him as our eternal judge. And so, number three in our notes is a hard question, but it's a very real one that this text demands that we ask. Again, all I'm, what my job is, is to try to explain this text not come up with it and so this text is demanding of us to answer this question are you ready for the kingdom to come are you ready are you are you ready am i ready have you trusted christ I mean, for many of us, we prepare for this last day like all the time. So we get our annuities and we get our 401ks and we get our life insurance and we set up primary beneficiaries and secondary beneficiaries and trust funds. And so we've prepared for this because we know that there's a day coming that we're going to die and we want to make sure that those that are left behind are well cared for. This is a good thing. This makes perfect sense. We should do that if you're able to. That is a good thing. But if, listen to me, if when you die, you're going to a direct encounter with God, or if Christ returns before you die and you are going to meet him face to face, what possesses you to prepare for time and not for eternity? A lot of times we're just going about our lives, like in the days of Noah and in the days of Lot, and we're eating and we're drinking and we're marrying and we're buying and we're selling And we're just going, 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 but we're never taking time to consider that Christ is going to come again or we're going to die and we're going to have to give an account for our life. He's coming again. And He's coming with the kingdom. We're happy about that as believers. And He's coming with judgment as well. And it's coming suddenly. And it's coming unexpectedly and unmistakably. In verse 26 again. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. They were not ready. They did not know. Boom. Boom. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the San Son of Man is revealed. And so, are you ready? Christ could come at any minute. Are you ready? And the Son of Man will come with a suddenness and judgment as God's judgment always comes. It came fast with Noah. It came fast with Lot and Sodom. And that suddenness demands that we get ready today, right now. And I know this is hard, but with these references to Noah and Lot, Jesus' is teaching... That his judgment is, 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 is a disaster coming worse than anything FEMA could ever imagine. Noah never, the people in Noah's day never saw it. Boom, judgment came. The people in Lot's day never knew it. Boom, judgment came. And so hear this warning. Jesus is warning us that God will suddenly call us to account. Suddenly. And he's not gonna. There's not gonna be a horn that sounds like on a, on a flight when you're flying and it's you know boom. Uh, we are now descending. Prepare your seats and da da, da da. There's gonna be no warning. Hey, five minutes and Jesus is coming back. Make sure that you get your final preparations made. This is the warning. Jesus is warning us, and the only reason he's delayed is because he's graciously inviting more people into the kingdom before He shuts the door forever. And so what about you? Are you ready? How do you stand with God? His judgment... The flood of His judgment against sin is coming. But folks, I want you to understand, that's the whole point of the ark. The the early church, we read a creed this morning, 381, Council of Nicaea, the early church understood the ark of Noah to be a type of Christ. Now, what does that mean? What is it? a type? A type is a symbol in the Old Testament that shows us in picture form something about Jesus. And so the ark is a type of Christ. Jesus is the ark that will see us through the floods of God's judgment. On the cross, the flood of God's judgment, Jesus endured it. He absorbed the wrath of God in his body on the cross, in your place, for your sin. He did that. But if you will not trust Christ to bear your sin for you, then you will bear it yourself. This is the warning Jesus is giving us. He's saying it's coming suddenly. Wake up. Wake up. Don't just be thinking about this life and what's going on and what you're going to eat in 15 minutes. Think about this. How are you with God? Are you ready for the kingdom to come? But for those who will humble themselves and take Christ by faith as their Savior, we long for this day to come. Because it's the culmination of everything. Everything of all that we've been waiting for. And I want you to notice here, it's just an ordinary day. People are eating. People are drinking. People are giving in marriage. They're buying and selling and planting and building. They're doing life. And then boom, in suddenness, like lightning, unmistakably, he appears. And so just a word of caution to, the, especially those of you who are newer Christians, or older Christians who've succumbed to this, please be careful of listening to all the wacko teachers who say all kinds of crazy things about the second coming. Please be careful. For some reason, false teaching seems to center around that. Be careful about that. Throughout the Bible, the big things are very, very, very clear. And the smaller things, the little things that people come up with and pull out of Scripture and am- that amaze and mystify us, and we're like, oh, wow, they are confusing, they are not clear, and they are unhelpful. The main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things. So let's make sure we understand what's central and what's peripheral. And not make peripheral central, because when we do that, then central just became peripheral. Be careful. And so don't be deceived by craziness. Jesus says this, verse 23, and they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. And so don't be deceived by craziness. If you have questions about the end of the world and how it's going to go down, talk to one of your pastors. We'd be glad to talk with you about that and together search the Scriptures and see what God's Word has to say about that. But in the meantime, let's obey verse 33. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. Jesus said things like this all throughout. I mean, this is very much if you were here two weeks ago, we talked about the rich man and Lazarus. This is the same thing. The rich man sought to preserve his life and he lost it. And so Jesus is saying, don't be like that guy. And so here's some questions for you. How are you giving your life away for Christ? How are you giving your life away for Christ? How are you losing your life so that you might gain it? Giving up the things that maybe you are naturally drawn to, or you love, or you adore, that are maybe idols in your life, and you're giving them up And you're living for Christ. How are you giving your life away for Christ today? There's a missionary in the 50s who died in Ecuador named Jim Elliott. A lot of people think he wrote this like right before he died and then he died. No, no, he wrote this years before, before he ever went on the mission field. And he said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What are you giving up for Christ? And so the kingdom is coming. Are you ready? For the non-believer, this is unsettling, this is unnerving, this is uncomfortable, frightening. But for the believer, this is what we long for. We, we long for Christ to come and make everything right. We long for, as Gandalf told Sam, for all the sad things to come untrue. Because deep down, we know that death and pain and sorrow, they are not natural. We are not meant to live like this. We are meant to live free from these things. And so we long for a better place. We long for the shalom and perfect fellowship with God and perfect fellowship with one another, a true brotherhood of mankind, perfect harmony with nature and agriculture, perfect cultural development, enjoyment of the arts and athletics and academics, perfect rest, perfect work. And this is where we're headed. Jesus will come again and bring the kingdom with Him. But he will not come as a baby, lowly and meek. When he comes again, Revelation 19, he will come as a warrior king on a white horse with a tattoo on his thigh, the blood of his vanquished foes on his robe, and snake boots on his feet to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to come again, and when He comes in this glorious return, the kingdom of God will come in its fullness. We'll have new heavens, we'll have new earth, all that's gone wrong, made right, all that's sad, come untrue. Creation will be restored. Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. So we've got God's place, right? We've got God's people and God's place under His rule and blessing. And they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment." And the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. And so yes and amen, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. It's going to be a glorious thing. But Jesus warns as well. Are you ready? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your good design. And in this life, Lord, we want to match back up with that design, broken as we are, fallen as we are, marred as creation is by sin. We know that your designs are perfect. And we want to match back up with that, but we cannot and we will not fully and finally until you return. We will struggle. We will still confess sin. We will still fall short. And You will still give grace. Because You are gracious and You are merciful. And so Father, we pray on the one hand, we long on the one hand, for You to come again, Jesus, and make right all that's gone wrong. Bring the kingdom. End death. End sin. End death. Wickedness, end suffering, end famine, end dirty water, end racial division, end war and greed and poverty, end evil and wickedness and immorality. But on the other hand, God, I want you to tarry because I want all my kids to know you. I want all my friends to know you before you come again. I want all my loved ones to repent and believe and have eternal life. And so we pray, yes, come, kingdom. Even as we're concerned about these things. We trust you and your goodness and your grace, but for all those that are within hear of my voice, would you help them to ask the question, "Are you ready?" And if the answer is no, to get ready simply by Surrendering their life to you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior. By receiving the offer of salvation that you hold out to them. That anyone can grab hold of if they will just repent and believe and acknowledge that they are a sinner. That they cannot make themselves right before a holy God, no matter how much good they can do versus infinity, you will never get there. Infinity of holiness. And so Jesus came and did what did for us what we could not do. And so Father, if there are people here who do not know you save them in this moment, give them faith to believe. And let us as a church or as pastors or as individuals and friends rally around them and help them to know and follow and grow in your grace and mercy until your kingdom comes in Jesus' name.